Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Donald Trump is working on a clean sweep of Republican primaries. Following Iowa, New Hampshire, and a tricked-out Nevada primary, he bested South Carolina's former governor, Nikki Haley, in that state on Saturday by 20 points. Here in North Carolina, early voting is underway with Election Day looming. It's next Tuesday. Already, 538.com has Trump ahead of Haley by just over 53 points. But the race for president isn't the only choice North Carolina primary voters have to make. Among the several Democratic and Republican candidates running for governor, Attorney General Josh Stein leads the field of Democrats, and Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson leads the field of GOP candidates. And there are races for other offices, including Congress. So this hour, we're going to look at those various races at what we think voters are thinking about, how the presidential race might impact down-ballot contests, and the influence of North Carolina voters, the influence they might or might not have on the makeup of the national government going forward. Steve Harrison is here. He covers politics for WFAE News. Rusty Jacobs is voting an election integrity reporter for WUNC in Durham and Chapel Hill. And Don Vaughn is the state capitol bureau chief at the Raleigh News and Observer. Welcome back to you all. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. So, Steve, I'm starting with you because no doubt knowing that she would lose her home state, Nikki Haley vowed even before the voting began in South Carolina that she would stay in the race. Well, I'm not exactly sure how long, but maybe certainly through Super Tuesday, perhaps longer. So she did lose on Saturday to Donald Trump. It wasn't a surprise. But did she do better or worse or did she end up just about as expected? I mean, I I think. I probably as expected. I, I mean, I think if you look at it, what happened in South Carolina from a traditional view, I mean, she got beat very badly, but she is saying that, look, she almost got 40%. That's not an insignificant number. That's a lot of people. And I feel like it's given her kind of momentum or a reason to keep going, even if even if there's really no path to win. I mean, I think her path is for some kind of fluke event to happen. Um, that she would be the last person standing and she's going to be in Charlotte on Friday night at Suffolk punch. So, um, the the train keeps going. Well, she flipped that 40% on its head. The the point she was making is that Donald Trump didn't get 40% of the vote. And for a, a person who is essentially an incumbent in this race, uh, for him not to get 40% means she says he can't win in the general. Do you think that's right? Um, that's certainly her argument that between, um, with college educated Republicans, independent voters, and of course, because in South Carolina, everyone could participate in that primary, that that's just a real sign of weakness for Mike, like you said, essentially an incumbent that to be losing that many voters at this stage in the race is a real problem. Now, of course, the people on the Trump side feel that president Biden is an incredibly weak candidate. They are ahead in the polling head to head. Um, but but yes, I do think it's a it's a warning sign on the Trump side that she's getting as many votes as she is. 
And the warning signs on the Haley side are the fact that the Koch brothers' political pack yesterday withdrew funding from her campaign, saying that they, that they did not see a path forward to victory for her, which could pose some problems if she really does want to continue to be on Super Tuesday. Uh, Rusty, I mentioned as of yesterday that 538 has Trump ahead of Haley by just over 53 points. Another poll has Trump up by only 28 points over Haley. How do we know where this... This race really stands, and either way, does she have any hope of closing the gap next Tuesday in North Carolina? Well, I think the fluke event that Steve might have been alluding to is what could happen in the courts. Donald Trump is facing litigation, facing uh, criminal cases, civil cases, and I mean, he's already been uh, told to pay a lot of money in the state of New York. Uh, his business practices in that state will be curtailed as a result of the uh, civil liability. So those things could affect uh, her standing as the, the lone person running against Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is not taking anything for granted. He's going to be in North Carolina right, right before voters go to the polls in the primaries. Kamala Harris is coming to the state. Uh, Nikki Haley is coming to the state. So for all intents and purposes, it's still... The poll results show Donald Trump in command in the GOP race. However, courts could intervene, juries, or, or rather court decisions could intervene in a way that none of us can predict right now. Donald Trump is pretty much in, in command of the Republican Party as well. And Don, I'm curious what the word is on Jones Street among the primarily Republican politicians that are in, ensconced in the legislature because he's named Michael Watley, who's the head of the North Carolina GOP, and Lara Trump, his uh, daughter-in-law, who used to live in North Carolina, as the two people he wants to head the RNC in the next couple of weeks. Is that, did he need that to boost his candidacy in North Carolina, or does he already have everybody in the legislature wrapped up? I feel like there's a direct path from North Carolina to the White House, really, if you look at everybody else, you know, with, with Mark Meadows in the past, too, as far as the, the Trump wing of the party. But I think Nikki Haley's showing is is 40 percent. Yeah, it's, it's a bad loss if you're looking at 40, 60. But it's also a huge amount of people who don't want Trump to be the nominee, that just don't want him there. And she's there as representative of all those other Republicans that want somebody else, whether or not it's her personally that they want, they just don't want him. Forty percent seems to be the magic number today, uh, Steve. President Biden's approval ratings are low, according to Rasmussen. Forty percent approve of the job that he's doing. Fifty-eight percent disapprove. Uh, Democratic pundits keep pointing uh, to all that he's accomplished in Congress, uh, to low unemployment numbers, to the fact that inflation, although still high, is coming down uh, to a soaring stock market and an economy that everyone thought would be in recession by now. It is not. Instead, it is roaring. So how do you explain these low approval numbers? Why isn't that message connecting with anybody? Well, it's... Uh... There is a frustration on the Democratic side and with President Biden that they feel they at times blame the media for not focusing on the good. Um, I, I do think inflation, even though inflation, the, the rate of inflation is no longer increasing as it was, things haven't gotten cheaper. You know, we're just not we're just not getting more expensive. It's just not it's just not keep continuing to go up. And I think that's still a huge problem for the president. Um 
you know, the flip side of his very low approval rating in the polls is that Democrats nationwide are winning elections ever since Dobbs, the Dobbs decision. When there are special elections, they have been on a really good run of winning. Now, maybe those are just low turnout elections and their side is more motivated, but it's an interesting race and in that there's the polls, which show disaster for the president. And then there are the actual results, which show that uh, that he's the party is running well. Uh, Rusty, uh, is it the media's fault? Politicians love to, to blame the media for almost everything that goes wrong in their uh, professional lives. But, but it, do, do we have have we have we played the incorrect role here? It's it's not our job to cheerlead for one side or the other, but it is our job to point out the facts which I think we do, but we tend to, to look toward the noise, which is coming from the Donald Trump side of things. Is it that? The, is that the reason the message is not getting through, or is it where people get their news? I would say no, it's not the media fault. How's that? I'll, I'll just, I'll just I'll, uh, disabuse that, uh, everybody of that notion right now. No, what I'll say is, what, what, unfortunately, what's persistently showing up in articles is talk about Biden's age, it's ugly to say so, but that he is dogged by this sense, at least, again, these are media reports that suggest there's a lot of people out there who are um, concerned about his age and his ability to handle the office. And in a way, it's always a comparison with, with Trump, you know, debatable whether he's got more vitality than, than, than Biden. The other thing I'll say is, Joe Biden is dogged by uh, foreign affairs and, and by uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the war in Gaza, and this Michigan primary that, that seems to be in balance because of this uncommitted movement, this movement to convince at least 10,000 Democratic-leaning Arab-American voters uh, to vote uncommitted and to show Biden that he's going to face problems in November if he's not more conciliatory towards their concern. So is that a media problem? I don't know, but that's what a lot of the reporting seems to be focusing on, age and his appeal on those foreign affairs issues. And yet the age gap is tiny, uh, and both of them make mental slips, as you would, all of us make mental slips, but both of them make them, and some people attribute it to their age. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Uh, North Carolina, Dawn, has gone Republican in the presidential contest almost exclusively since 1968. I think the only exception to that was uh, Barack Obama's first run for the presidency. It went for Trump twice, although one poll that I read, at least, gave Joe Biden a slight advantage this time. I'm not sure how accurate that is or whether that will change between now and November. So how important is this state likely to be in this presidential contest come November? Absolutely important. Republicans need it to win the White House. And Trump won the state last round, but not by very much. It was, uh, I think, 1.34%, something like that. And a lot of things come to, I know everything comes down to turnout, but really it does when you are so close, when anything like the edge that is so close either way on, did you get these unaffiliated voters? Did you get these already registered in your party voters to decide it's worth voting? And to the age thing, Biden and Trump are basically the same age. I think they're like two years apart or, or something like that. And People don't really want either of them. And so that's some of the unenthusiasm for Biden, because as Steve was saying, 
inflation's not going up necessarily anymore, but everything's still really expensive. And if people are unhappy with every with what things cost, they think, well, I don't like the person in charge right now. I want someone different. So yeah. I think that's a lot of the a lot of the factor there. And with the media, I mean, you know, stuff costs a lot. Housing is crazy expensive here. Maybe not in other places, you know, but it's all what those local stories are too. Uh, Steve, I don't know whether which president this was associated with because I, I can't remember. But uh, I, there was a question rolling around during one of these presidential cycles asking, are you better off today than you were four years ago? How, how would people answer that question? And let's flip it. Are you worse off today than you were four years ago? I mean, I think that goes back. I mean, it may have been said before, but what I remember is 1980. Mm -hmm with uh, Reagan Carter, I think that was the big line and it was a pretty devastating line. Um, and so, yeah, people are drawing some parallels to that race in that inflation was the biggest issue in 1980 and it may be the biggest issue in, uh, oh my goodness, 44 years later. And in one, of the, in, in one of the Clinton races, it's the economy, stupid, was the, it was the pet phrase. Uh, if that were today, how is the economy? Most people think it's terrible, but it's not. Yeah, if, like you said, Mike, earlier, unemployment, stock market, two big indicators are doing really well. But uh, but like Don said, every time you go to the store, you're reminded that, yeah. um, you know, that the dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. True, and if you go out to eat, it costs a lot more than it used to, it seems to me at least. Uh, Steve Harrison is with us. He's WFAE's political reporter. Rusty Jacobs is a voting and election integrity reporter for WUNC, something I want to talk about when we come back, because that seems to be very specific uh, in terms of a title and area of discipline. And Don Vaughn is with us, State, Bureau, uh, State Capitol Bureau Chief at the Raleigh News and Observer. We're going to go through all of these primary uh, races, not all of them, but many of the key primary races in the next half hour, the governor's race, the lieutenant governor's race, several of these congressional races. And, of course, the congressional maps have been redrawn since the last time. So things have changed since the last time you went to that voting booth to vote for Congress. We're coming right back at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. We're here with Steve Harrison from WFAE News, Don Vaughn, State Capitol Bureau Chief for the Raleigh News and Observer, and Rusty Jacobs, Voting and Election Integrity Reporter for WUNC. Rusty, it's going to become the Rusty Jacobs Show for a few minutes here while we talk about some of these things. And before we talk about the individual races on, these, on this ballot uh, so far this year, let's talk about voting changes. This is the first election in which you have to show voter ID. Republicans here and around the country have uh, positioned voter ID as essential to maintain election integrity. Democrats, of course, warned that it would shut people out of voting, make it more difficult for them to do so. From what we have seen in early voting, is there any way to see which side is right? Have you heard of anybody who's had a problem voting with voter ID? No. And first of all, the the voting voter ID requirement was actually implemented for last year's municipal elections. It's a much smaller turnout, small sampling. Fewer than 500,000 votes were cast statewide in the 2023 municipal elections. Of those, less than one-tenth of one percent 
um, were cast as uh, ballots. Um, they, they were cast by people who didn't have photo ID at the polls. And of those, I, you know, more than half were counted, had no problems. Several hundred or, or more than 200 were rejected because people didn't have for photo ID rejection problems. Of those, some were counted because people filled out what these, these exception forms, they were unanimously approved or not unanimously rejected by local elections boards. And then of those, a very small number were rejected because either people didn't fill out an exception form or didn't go back to their local elections board with a valid ID in time to have their vote counted. So it's a very small number that were discounted because of photo ID issues during the municipal elections. Again, a small sampling. I think that uh, the, the, the truth is, is that because there's a lot of concern in the voting advocacy community and among Democrats about the impact of the photo ID requirement on turnout, uh, the concern that people won't get their vote counted may be a little exaggerated. It doesn't mean that there are not requirements to fulfill and hurdles to clear, but overall, <clears throat> I think most people have driver's IDs, driver's licenses, and when they don't, there are many other IDs that qualify or even exceptions to get around that requirement. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's very little evidence that uh, any significant number of people have been disenfranchised because of a lack of ID at, at the polls. On the other hand, is there any evidence that this has improved election integrity in any way? I'd say, no, I'd say to both, first of all, even one, and I, you know, I understand this, in yeah. the voting advocacy community, even one person who's otherwise eligible to vote getting discounted because of, say, some misapplication of the rules by a local elections board or a local elections official is too many, right? Uh, but, you know, the, the inconvenient truth on both sides on, for, for the proponents of this is that the kind of fraud that the voto, photo ID requirement would address is virtually non-existent, certainly in a significantly statistical manner. There's not this rampant fraud happening. So why put up the hurdles? That's one inconvenient truth. But the other side, the, the people who oppose any kind of photo ID requirement, the inconvenient truth is that there are many ways to comply with the, rule, with the law. Steve, did you want to jump in here? Am I imagining? Yeah, that? yeah. No, I, I did a... Um... I looked at in that Rusty was talking about that municipal election um, back in November, 500,000 people voted. The biggest chunk was in Mecklenburg County because we countywide. And I, I did a big look at, at uh, the number of votes that weren't counted. And Rusty's right. It wasn't very many. Um, I looked at it by uh, like a racial disparity um, in terms of, you know, the different numbers that were that were not counted. Among white voters, it was about one for every 1,700 people who, who voted um, or tried to vote. And then among African-Americans, it was about one in 1,300. So there was a disparity. It wasn't huge. Um, no, no Latino voters who tried to vote were not able to vote because of photo ID. Um, so I, I think to Rusty's point, the numbers aren't huge and the numbers aren't probably enough to sway in a, a race. But if you're that one person or that the five people or the 10 people who weren't able to vote because you forgot or for various reasons, right, it's a big deal. I mean, for, for, for a problem that is arguably not really a problem. Rusty, you are WUNC's voting and election integrity reporter. 
why? Why did WUNC find it necessary or important to have someone dedicated to covering that aspect of our elections? I mean, it goes back to 2020 when methods of voting became a partisan issue. Uh, there was a, a big bipartisan bill just before the 2020 election, but then the voting advocacy community pursued litigation over trying to make absentee voting in particular more easy during the pandemic when people were re really worried about getting caught in line and contracting illness at the polls. That litigation uh, widened the rift between Republicans and Democrats, and Republicans have been seething over changes to the election rules for 2020 for a long time and were determined to implement the kinds of changes we're seeing now. But at the time when changes were happening, when the question of election integrity was, does that mean broadening access to the polls or shrinking or contracting access to the polls? That's when our station decided this was something worth devoting a reporter's attention to. Problems at our southern border and illegal immigration are high on the list of concerns that voters have in this election cycle as they head to the polls. And I hold in my hand something I received yesterday in the mail, uh, as I'm sure others did too, from some, some organization called Judicial Watch, warning me that, quote, integrity of our electoral process is being gutted by the failure of President Joe Biden and other public officials to enforce our immigration laws and honor the principle of, or the principle that, in all caps, only American citizens should be allowed to vote in U.S. elections, and asking for a donation to Judicial Watch to stop Joe Biden and the radical left, their words, from opening our voting booths to illegal aliens and potentially stealing the 2024 election. That's all in this. Uh, is this complete BS? Is there any evidence at all that non-citizens, illegal aliens, can vote and do vote in any of our elections? I'd Rusty? say no. I, I mean, I, I, you know, what happens occasionally is, let's say somebody has a criminal conviction on their record and they were disenfranchised because of the rules of their particular state. But they believe, in some case, they're uh, entitled to vote. Maybe they... I, I, I can't tell you why that would happen, but somebody votes, but then the, the, the post-election audit process and North Carolina has a painstaking process known as the county canvas. Those wrongful votes, in a sense, are found and they are discounted. The system works. So do people occasionally cast a ballot when they're not entitled to or they haven't probably registered? It happens, again, in small uh individual isolated cases, those cases are found. It does not happen on the wide scale that that literature suggests. I well, let's think, I was going to say, Go I think, Mike, this is a reference to there has been a debate in New York City about having non-citizens be able to vote in local elections. Uh, wow. I think maybe that's what Judicial Watch is getting to. And there was a recent, the city had moved to allow it was about 800,000 non-citizens to vote in city and school board races. I think there was a court decision recently this week or last week that said that, that will not allow that. Okay. Plus, elections are, are, are local elections are up to local officials. They're not controlled by the federal government. Am I right about that? I believe that that would be 
the reason in New York City why this was a local issue as opposed to, you know, voting for president so, or Congress, etc. So, you, right. so you just said that was shot down by the courts. They can't do that anymore. Is that correct? I believe that just came down okay. this week. Uh, okay. So let's bring it home to North Carolina. Don, uh, although there are other candidates running, the governor's race seems to be between Democrat Attorney General Josh Stein and the state's lieutenant governor, Republican uh, Mark Robinson. Do you anticipate any surprises in next week's uh, election <laughs> results? It's funny, I just filed a story last night and had to add the, you know, you always have to add the disclaimer because that's just how elections go. It would be a really massive surprise to overcome the money, the polling, everything else. But there is always a, a slim chance of it, of it not being them. But I think it's, you know, all, every sign points to we're looking at Stein versus so the difference between these two uh, candidates could not be broader. Robinson is fairly polarizing. He has made some very controversial, often repugnant statements. Uh, Stein is more traditional in the Democrat mo mode. Do either of these candidates have the hope of attracting voters outside of their base going into either this election or the next one? Right. So that's what we were talking about earlier, the presidential race being along these, you know, slight margins for error. And are you going to get people? And if you look to, you know, moderate, unaffiliated voters, are they going to go for Mark Robinson and his personality? You know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but again, if it is really just those, if you get the full turnout from the party faithful, then that can help you out. And unaffiliated, even though they're the largest voting group, still generally vote one way or another. They're not really actually swing voters. There are some. I uh, interviewed a woman who voted for both Obama and Trump and Hillary Clinton in various elections and lived down the street from Madison Cawthorn, did not like him. So she is, you know, they're out there. There are North Carolina voters you know, that will change each time. And that's why there's going to be so much national attention on us, not just because of the governor's race, but because how we can influence the the presidential race. Steve, and those think, two things are tied. Steve, I think I'm right in saying that uh, in North Carolina, independent voters make up the largest block of voters, not, not Republicans, not Democrats. Which way do they predominantly lean? Do you know? So I think right now it is Democrats are Rusty or Don. You guys, I think Democrats are still the largest group. But anyway, it's they're they're all okay. converging to your point. No, it's unaffiliated. Unaffiliated. Yeah, okay, yeah, they're still okay. Yeah, Mike, you were right. I was. Uh, um, so which way? I think to what Don just said. I mean, there's not a tremendous amount of true swing voters, unaffiliated, who go both ways. Now, that being said, the, the most prized group of voters in this state are Trump-Cooper voters. Um, you know, Cooper won twice in years that Trump won. And so there is a small sliver of voters who, uh, you know, who backed President Trump and then went and voted for Governor Cooper. And so those, those voters will be key again in this, you know, in this governor's race, Ken Stein or... Robinson, you know, can they win those those group that are up for grabs? 
Yeah, we seem to do that in North Carolina. We vote Republican for president, Democrat for, for governor, Republican for the legislature. Much of the legislature, perhaps, is because of gerrymandering. I'm not sure about that. But uh, uh, it's a long way to November. But according to Carolina Forward, a poll conducted by uh, Change Research, in the middle of this month, Stein and Robinson are in a statistical tie. Does that simply speak to how divided we are as a nation, how divided we are as, uh, as North Carolinians? What, what can we glean from that? It's really just the numbers, uh, the data there. I mean, the Democrats are still a larger group than Republicans. So those unaffiliated voters, because a lot of times they follow the same voting trends of those that are registered with a political party, they have that, that slight edge. So we could be looking at North Carolina voters picking just barely again, maybe Trump, and then picking Josh Stein. Probably less likely that it would be Biden Robinson, but you really don't know. So Robinson pretty much, Steve, has the Republican race sewn up. He is way far ahead of his nearest challengers, Bill Graham and Dale Falwell. On the Democratic side, it's a little tighter. Josh Stein still holds a clear majority over Michael Morgan. Are there any issues that have emerged in this race to either push these front runners to the top or to engage voters in, in choosing one over the other? I would say basically no. I mean, we've had no debates between them, no forums. Um, so there's no been no opportunity to compare and contrast directly. I think on the Democratic side, um, I think that, that, that Mike Morgan came out with his campaign last fall with a really compelling video, a biographical video of, of how he grew up being the first black student at his elementary school in, in New Bern. Um, a very powerful story. And since then, his campaign has really struggled to make news, to, to just be out there. Um, and, and part of that, a huge part is money, of course, but there also hasn't been an ability to uh, get in the news, drive the news cycle. And it's been a little quieter than, than I thought, and I think some other people thought as well. What issues do you think will crop up in no, the November election between the winners of these two primary contests? Well, on the, the Democratic side, assuming that is, is Josh Stein, uh, he will be trying to disqualify Mark Robinson at every opportunity. And this is what Bill Graham, the, one of his Republican challengers, has been saying. I mean, he said repeatedly, if we nominate Robinson, he is going to lose. Hmm. Uh, Rusty, money spent on campaigns doesn't always tell the whole story. It doesn't always make a difference, but it certainly doesn't hurt. It gives you an advantage, I would imagine, as a candidate. Earlier this month, it was reported that Josh Stein had $11.5 million in cash on hand. Robinson had $4.3 million. That's a big leap. That's a big gap. Uh, is money likely to flow into both of these campaigns once the winners of the primaries are decided. Absolutely. And, you know, Mark Robinson is all the things he's saying that are helping him in his primary could hurt him in the general election. I mean, he's giving Josh Stein and the Democrats uh, all the material they need to, as Steve said, disqualify him uh, and but but the the national money is going to pour in, no doubt about it. I mean, this still is seen. This being North Carolina, is seen as a purple state, uh, and you you pointed out before, it's usually a uh, a blue governor, red president. 
but yeah, absolutely, the national parties are going to get behind these candidates. And Don, this is supposed to be the marquee uh, gubernatorial race in the nation in this election cycle. If that's accurate, uh, how is that important to average Joe voter out there? So, you know, North Carolina voters, it's they'll probably be tired of hearing about it by the <laughs> end, <laughs> I think, honestly, because we're getting so much national attention instead of state attention. I think, like we've said, it's really just that there's such a distinct contrast between Stein and Robinson's personalities, too, and then all that money coming in. When we come back, we'll talk about the lieutenant governor's race briefly, and then the attorney general's race, which I mean, it's amazing that it's distracting any attention at all, but it is. And then some congressional races that are important and maybe different because of the redistricting that we've, been, we've gone through. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded, 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking about the races in the upcoming primary for which early voting is already underway. Election Day is Tuesday. Steve Harrison is here, political reporter for WFAE News. Rusty Jacobs, voting and election integrity reporter for WUNC. And Don Vaughn, State Capitol Bureau Chief for the Raleigh News and Observer. Don, the governor's office in North Carolina is a weak one. Uh, by design in comparison to other states. So that means the lieutenant governor's office is even weaker. Uh, the lieutenant governor has very few powers, but Mark Robinson, the current lieutenant governor, is running to, for the top spot this time. And last time, another lieutenant governor, Dan Forrest, ran against uh, Cooper. How many lieutenant governor campaign uh, candidates are in the running on both sides of, these, uh, of, of the aisle? Oh, gosh. I think it's about a dozen. And that's less than last time. I remember doing a story when Robinson (laughs) ran. There were 17 people total that wanted to be lieutenant governor. So I did a story on why, you know, and it's because sometimes it leads to the mansion. It did for former governor Bev Perdue, but it sure didn't for others. Attorney general gets you there sometimes. It got Roy Cooper there, you know, but um, I mean, McCrory was the mayor of Charlotte before, so but lieutenant governor pays six figures. It pays as much as the other council state positions aside from the governor. So it's, you know, it's a lot of money for sitting on some boards and getting as much attention as you want. Your newspaper, the Raleigh News and Observers Under the Dome podcast, sent questions to the three Democrats and 11 Republicans running for this position. Not all of them responded, I understand. How many did? And among those who did, what issues emerged as important to them? What are they running on? Yeah, so Lieutenant Governor is my beat, and I sent all those out. I think we got 10 back, and even the one that didn't make it in time, Seth Woodall, Republican primary candidate, sent it to me a couple days ago, and we got it up. So most of them did. The vast majority of them did. And and some of the questions I asked was because about the state employee vacancy rate, What and also what do you think you could um, you could shape if you're if you're elected because of the way this role is with no power, you basically can use it to get what attention you want. So I think, you know, the Democratic front runner is Rachel Hunt. She's a big proponent of public education. 
There are also two high profile education candidates on the Republican side, Representative Jeffrey Elmore, who is an art teacher. I think he's the only person in the Republican House caucus or the whole legislature who's currently a teacher. And Deanna Ballard, the former state senator, who one of her big things that she's been campaigning on and then that she actually had a pretty big hand in was reopening schools during COVID. So if, if Elmore or Ballard wins and goes up against Hunt, that'll be interesting because education is potentially the major topic of their campaigns. And of course you sit on the State Board of Education and Community College Board as Lieutenant Governor. Let's talk about the Attorney General race because this pits two fairly high profile individuals against each other. In the Democratic primary, you have Congressman Jeff Jackson, who is noted for his use of social media. Uh, and you have Dan Bishop, the Republican, who has held several offices in the state, uh, also a congressman. Um, uh, would it be safe to say that if those two individuals were not in the running, that we wouldn't really be talking very much about this race? Yeah, I think this race, again, sort of like the governor's race, is a lot of personalities. And the fact that both Bishop and Jackson, assuming that that he wins and defeats Deberry in the primary, is that they are both members of Congress going head to head that have strong personalities like Jackson and his TikTok following and just what he already had out there and then Bishop being part of the Freedom Caucus. So they're these like very loud personalities essentially and that's what gets the attention and a lot of money again, you know, both that and the governor's race are definitely kind of the loudest races of the year, I think. I'm glad you brought that up. Steve, in that race at the beginning of this month, Jeff Jackson had $1.8 million on hand, raised more than $2 million, and spent just over $246,000. Dan Bishop had $1.3 million on hand, raised more than $439,000, and spent less than $64,000. How do you explain the difference, both in the fundraising and in the spending? Well, Bishop does not have a primary opponent um, is a big thing. He will advance to November automatically. Um, in the Democratic side, I think one of the interesting things about this race is that uh, Jackson's opponent, the, the Durham District Attorney, is being elevated by an outside group with Republican ties running uh, commercials across the state, kind of uh, not tearing Jackson down, but but promoting Satana DeBerry, uh, her credentials as a, quote, progressive prosecutor. So it appears the Republicans are kind of meddling in this race to, um, and I think it's safe to say they would, Jackson would, is going to be a tougher out for Dan Bishop. And so that's why they are, are, promoting uh, satanity bearing. Jeff Jackson is a moderate Democrat. I guess that's a fair uh, description of his politics. He's made ample use of social media. He seems to be popular and likable, at least, whether you like his politics or not is another question. Bishop is among the most conservative members of the House. He's, as, as Dawn said, Rusty, she's, he's in the Tea Party caucus. If the race in November ends up being between the two of them, who is likely to have the edge? It's hard to say in North Carolina, but you, you will have a stark contest. I mean, Dan Bishop is as uh, fervent a supporter of Donald Trump as you can get. Um, I was texting with him uh, on the night of January 6th, 2021. Um, I tried to get comment on what was happening. And I mean, at that time, before things had even settled down, he was 
casting it as or recasting it not as an insurrection. I mean, he was he was already in a defensive mode trying to explain what was happening on January 6, 2021, with the assault on the Capitol. Um, and with, you know, with Jeff Jackson, you have a guy who was often making floor speeches in the state Senate uh, on, you know, in defense of Democratic policies. So you're going to get a very stark contest uh, that is illustrative of the national contest between Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, the I, maybe Dawn could could weigh in. I mean, where you have a, a state that goes one way, tends to go one way for governors and one way for presidents. You know, does that benefit the Democrat or the Republican? I don't know. Don, I do can know? see there being split ticket with governor, attorney general, depending on what you, you know, people's views on crime and what control they think the, the attorney general has over that. But if you're looking at, you know, Trump, Robinson, Bishop, they're all pretty, pretty aligned, I would say. Let's talk about congressional races before we run out of time. Every two years, we throw the bums out and, and bring them back. Uh, uh, in Congress, and right now the do-nothing Congress, uh, the makeup may change as a result of this election. When it comes to these uh, races, in this area at least, let's start with the 8th District. That's where Mark Harris is running in the Republican primary against John Bradford III and Alan Baucom. Uh Steve, WFAE hosted a candidate forum in late January with these candidates, and you said that they agreed on things like immigration and impeaching Joe Biden and ending Roe, but uh, Bradford and Harris clashed a couple of times. Over what? Yeah, I think that those two, it's a six-person race, and Bradford and Harris see each other as their biggest competition. Um, in terms of clashing, uh, John Bradford called out Mark Harris for his role in the 2018 mail ballot scandal in Bladen County. Um, he kind of directly confronted him over that. Mark Harris uh, was painting John Bradford as a moderate um, because Bradford, when he ran for reelection in 2020 against Christy Clark in North Mecklenburg, had said he didn't have any interest in rolling back uh, abortion regulations. Now, he ultimately did. He voted for the 12-week ban on most abortions. But Mark Harris would like to go farther. Mark Harris would like to do a fetal heartbeat bill and was kind of saying, like, look, if you vote for John Bradford, send him to Congress, he will not be there for you. Um, this is a really interesting race in that uh, so many candidates, I haven't seen any public polling on this. And uh, just Mark Harris's comeback story, fascinating. Well, yeah, the, let's talk about that because he was in that Bladen County race that was overturned, and he decided he opted not to uh, put himself up for office again in that race, even though he technically won, but then they threw out the election because of uh, mail fraud. Yet, yet now he's back. How do you explain that? Is it just short-term memory on the part of voters? Has he done a mea culpa? Is he now denying his involvement in what happened down there? I mean, what's the story here? He's certainly not denying his involvement, but he his position is that Mark Harris believes he was somewhat railroaded. Uh, that's not a word he's using, but but I think that kind of sums up his feelings. And his view is that um, there weren't enough ballots in question to change the result. He feels like the Democrats the Democrats were kind of conspiring to. But his view, conspiring but, to have a new election. But Republicans are consumed over election integrity and making sure that voter fraud is stamped out. And yet he was involved in a race that had fraud in it. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly did. 
and there was no, you know, and also I think it's important to remember that he himself called for a new election during that investigatory hearing in 2019. The elections director at the time of the state was a Republican. Two Republican members of the board voted to have a new election. Um, I think voters in the district still remember that. I mean, I don't think anyone has forgotten, but um, Harris is running on, he's certainly being asked about it all the time. He's not shying away from talking about it, but his view is that it wasn't as big of a deal as we all thought. So there's one candidate on the Democrat side, uh, Justin Dews. Can a Democrat win in this newly drawn district? And can a Democrat win if uh, Harris is the nominee for the Republican side, given his history? I, I don't, if Harris wins, uh, wins the primary, I think he'll win the general. I, I just, it's such a red district. I don't see any way for a Democrat to win. If you watch campaign TV commercials, you will know that WFAE's logo figures prominently in an attack ad produced by a conservative political action committee banking, uh, backing Iredell County Republican State Representative Gray Mills, who is running in the 10th Congressional District. The ad uses audio from an interview here on WFAE conducted with his opponent in the Republican primary, Pat Harrigan, accusing Harrigan of being soft on immigration. What can you tell us about that, Steve? Yeah, this was from a podcast that, that we did at WFAE two years ago when Harrigan was running against Jeff Jackson for Congress. And we talked about immigration. Um, Harrigan said at that time, look, we must secure the border. Uh, you know, that is the main priority. But then he kind of took a softer tone and talked about, look, we have people here in the country who are here illegally. We are not going to round them up and deport them. And then he made a list of countries that do that. He talked about Nazi Germany, China, the Soviet Union, et cetera, and says, we don't want to be part of that list. Um, at the time, Harrigan was running against Jackson in a Democratic district, and now those same words in a Republican primary are being used against him relentlessly to paint him as being soft on immigration. Yeah, he compared the rounding up immigrants and sent, putting them in camps or sending them away, uh, not unlike the prisoner treatment by Nazi Germany in World War II. And you have a presidential candidate on the Republican side who is echoing the words of Hitler in many cases when it comes to Im immigrants and immigration. Uh, if you vote for Trump, can you vote for this guy? Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the Gray Mills campaign is certainly hoping the answer to your question is no. Um, you know, Harrigan's, I went back and listened to that interview, and it was kind of very much a Ronald Reagan type view on immigration. He was saying, like, look, I'm pro-immigration. Pro, pro These people are here to better themselves and their families. We need to remember that. Um, and, of course, he did want to secure the border. But it's just, even though immigration was a really big deal in 2022, it has become so much more of a huge, bigger, you know, the biggest issue in the Republican Party now. So before we run out of time, there are five candidates on the Republican side, one on the Democratic side, uh, although I think that Democratic primary was canceled, so that he'll just be on the ballot in November. Of the five Republicans, who has the edge? In the 10th? Yeah. I, I mean, I think this is a Mills-Harrigan race in terms okay. of who has the edge. I, I think that's, yeah. Moving on to the 14th, uh, House Speaker uh, Tim Moore helped design the congressional maps and, and redraw uh, that redraw affected many of the uh, the makeup of those districts and who could run and who, who might have a stab at, at winning incumbency. So a lot of things changed. Uh, Rusty, he's now running in one of those affected districts, the 14th. Did he 
make the decision to run after the maps were drawn, or did he draw the map so that he could run? <laughs> he probably knew the maps were going to have a district that suit, suited his ambitions. This is his shot. Uh, he would probably have taken the shot earlier had Madison Cawthorn not decided to switch districts uh, and kind of edged him out. More didn't want to get in a, in a battle with Madison Cawthorn. Of course, that map ended up being redrawn. But at that point, the, the ship had sailed. So this is this is Moore's district, and he's been endorsed by Donald Trump. So I think he's going to get what he always expected he would get at some point. So Democrats were apoplectic uh, following Trisha Cotham's defection from uh, their party to the Republican Party shortly after her last election to the state house. Uh, she's running again in a different district, 105. She was elected last time in a Democratic-leaning district. I believe the maps because of the redraw 105 is a Republican-leaning district. It includes Matthews and Mint Hill in South Charlotte. Uh, on, the, on the Democratic side in that contest, Terry Lansdell, Yolanda Holmes, and Nicole Sidman are running. Since Democrats, Steve, have vowed revenge against Trisha Cotham, can any of them take her on successfully in November? Yeah, I think, I mean, like you said, Mike, it's a toss-up district. Uh, it's a 50-50, so whoever wins the Democratic primary will have a really great chance there will be so much money put in that race. The local Democrats are going to put a phenomenal amount of work and effort. So, yeah, uh, uh, definitely a chance. Uh, a majority of South Carolina Republicans polled say that they would vote for Donald Trump even if he is criminally convicted prior to the election. And that's a distinct possibility. Do we know, uh, Don, how, how North Carolina Republicans would vote? And I have 15 seconds. <laughs> Uh, there are diehard Trumpers who aren't going to change their vote no matter what. But I think Haley's shown that that's not as large a group as it once was. That's Don Vaughn. She's state Capitol Bureau chief for the Raleigh News and Observer. Rusty Jacobs is voting and election integrity reporter for WUNC. And Steve Harrison is our political reporter here at WFAE News. Early voting is underway. The primary is actually on Tuesday. Vote. Thank you all for the hour. Celebrating 25 years on the air, Charlotte Talks with Mike Collins is a production of 90.7 WFAE. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from Mazda of South Charlotte. Our executive producer is Wendy Herkey. The senior producers are Gabe Altieri and Sarah D'Elia. Our engineer is Joby Sprinkle. For more information about Charlotte Talks, to listen to past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast, visit wfae.org slash charlotte talks. Additional support for WFAE programming comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.